Welcome, everybody. Uh, we're going to let's chat about pediatric trauma, shall we? Um, my name is Dr. Marianne Gaushi Hill. I'll be working with Dr. Jeannie Roosevelt and Annalise Sorrentino. And first of all, um, just want to say that none of us have any disclosures, uh, sadly, but it's true. And uh, just a little bit about ourselves. I'm going to have uh, each of us introduce themselves when they do their first uh, topic. We're going to be doing uh, five different topics. We're going to try to be moving in a fast-paced fashion, but giving you kind of the key elements that you need to understand that topic area in pediatric trauma. And these are the topics we're going to cover, fast or no fast in pediatric trauma, high-risk injuries, don't miss x-rays, top clinical decision rules, and I know you guys are all familiar with a number of them, when to suspect physical abuse, because I think this is a, a critical issue and vital um, to the knowledge base of emergency physicians. And then at the, the very end, I'm just going to cover a hot topic on use of hypertonic saline versus mannitol. And uh, we've seen a switch over in our department, so I'll talk a little bit about what that data is and, and maybe where everybody's going on, on that particular topic. So I'm going to introduce myself, and each of us will introduce themselves when they uh, present their first topic. I'm going to talk about fast or no fast um, in pediatric trauma. And as you can see, I'm the medical director for Los Angeles County EMS Agency. I'm also a professor of clinical medicine and pediatrics at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and the EMS fellowship director at Harbor UCLA Medical Center Department of Emergency Medicine. So with that, uh, we're going to talk about point-of-care ultrasound in emergency departments, especially as it cares for children. There have been a number of policy statements that come out in 1990 and 1994 by ASAP and SAM about the integration of ultrasound techniques in emergency care. And finally, ABIM included point-of-care ultrasound in the core content of emergency medicine in 2001. ASAP guidelines on the use of ultrasound came out in 2008, so I'm sure many of you have already implemented ultrasound programs uh, within your own departments, and certainly we see that as one of the core skill sets of emergency medicine residents uh, trained today, as well as pediatric emergency medicine fellows. And that dovetails well with the ASEP and AAP guidelines, or excuse me, policy statement on point-of-care ultrasound for pediatric emergency physicians that came out in 2015. And those documents are nice because it outlines uh, some of the educational requirements, credentialing, and kind of what you need in your program for pediatric emergency medicine fellows. All right, there are a number of applications, both uh, static and dynamic applications for ultrasound. Uh, as a general rule, ultrasound is better to rule in, so high specificity or spin, so the SP is specificity and rule in. And negative tests may warrant other imaging. Just as in other diagnostic modalities, a positive test is often positive, but a negative test uh, may not give you the information that you need, and you may need to think of doing other diagnostics or other consultations, right? PEDS patients, as we know, are particularly sensitive to ionizing uh, radiation, and when imaging is indicated, we need to consider other alternatives. Also, I know Dr. Roosevelt's going to talk to you about those clinical decision rules. When might you not image at all? Um, is also important and should be in the knowledge base of emergency physicians. 
And then finally, I think as part of these guidelines, I say pediatric emergency physicians also, just like emergency physicians, ultrasound needs to be part of their skill set. And I think the overarching bottom line to the use of ultrasound is ultrasound is better to rule in again than rule out as a diagnostic modality. Some of the benefits of VFAST, it can detect uh, fluid and peritoneal and pleural cavities, uh, air in the pleural cavity, as you know, for looking at lung sliding. I love that technique, and you'll see a picture of that in a second. And it improves diagnostic accuracy uh, when used in conjunction with your physical exam. That's the best way to use ultrasound. Also, there's some studies to show that in uh, conjunction with some of other diagnostic testing, such as liver function tests, et cetera. So again, it's a rapid adjunct to your physical exam and expedites time to surgery consultation or need for emergent interventions. The thing that's great about it is it can be performed at the bedside, no radiation, it's repeatable and relatively low cost. So, and that's some of the data to support what I'm saying. With that said, there's lack of experience of many clinicians in the use of ultrasound. I'm not sure how many of you are using it within your programs, but certainly in any of a number of forms, both here at ASAP and uh, a number of other um, conferences have ultrasound courses, which is great. And for pediatric emergency physicians at the advanced assembly every year, uh, we advance pediatric assembly. There's a uh, full-day ultrasound course if you want to learn about ultrasound. So only 27% of the fellowship programs have them. As we know, it's operator-dependent, so it really depends on your skills. So once you learn the skill, you need to keep using it. As I mentioned, the sensitivity is poor, specificity is high, and so that's, again, part of the rule-in uh, uh, concept. The other thing, there's myths, right? Uh, why should we learn about ultrasound for children if most of the kids don't go to the operating room anyway? What's nice is you want to pick out those critical uh, patients that you may want to call the surgeon in right away or uh, to get them to the operating room. And I'll show you an algorithm at the end of my discussion here that kind of goes through that and how you would integrate it within your practice. All right, these are the typical areas we think about EFAST. Uh, Morrison's pouch is number one there to the splenorenal uh, area. Superpubic, which turns out to be you know, kind of a go-to area. That's generally where fluid collects first. Cardiac imaging is rarely going to be uh, positive in children, and finally, lung for lung sliding, and we'll see pictures of this. Here's an example of Morrison's pouch is normal, and then you can see the abnormal. You can see the fluid. It's um, obviously here you can see all the collection of fluid, okay, within Morrison's pouch. Next is splenorenal. You're going to see it normal here. I'm going to show you the abnormal simultaneously. You can see that there's a lot of uh, fluid just around uh, the, the spleen. Finally, suprapubic. Okay, here's normal. Obviously, you see uh, bladder. And then in this situation, you can see collection of fluid around the bladder. And that tends to be the one that is going to be the, the go-to. Here is pericardial effusion. Anteriorly, you really look. Generally, you can see a small amount of fluid normally uh, posterior, but anterior, you, um, you see a nice collection of fluid there. 
And then finally, here's a long sliding. It looks like mar marching ants. Here, there's actually no marching ants. Let me show that. Oops, I can't. I was going to show that again to you, but um, I think you got a good picture of it. So what you're looking for is just uh, you're looking for the pleura to, to be sliding. And when you don't see that, um, it's really highly, highly accurate for pneumothorax. And I've had situations, a guy stabbed in the chest, and uh, the chest X-ray is normal. I do, I do a quick ultrasound, no lung sliding. We do a CT. He actually has a huge pneumothorax. So I'm a big believer in looking at lung sliding. Um, this is where does fluid develop first in children, as I mentioned. Uh, here's a study looking at this, and it turns out that the area that I would think about would be in the right upper quadrant in Morrison's pouch or the splenorenal area, but it's actually superpubically in children. So that's kind of a go-to area. If the kid's really sick, you may want to uh, attend to that area first. Some of the limitations is in evaluating the retroperitoneum, uh, not having the kid in Trendelenburg position to create some gravity to help you. As you know, with children, unless there's a fair amount of fluid, you may not be able to pick it up. So it's a, a little less accurate um, overall in, in, in children. Uh, Propositioning is going to be key, and you want to look through multiple planes. And the other thing is EFAST can be, uh, you can do multiple scans. And the frequency of that, it's not clear. Let me just give you a little bit of data so we can kind of keep moving here. Um, this was a study uh, by uh, Dr. Fox and colleagues looking at the test characteristics of uh, focused ultrasound in stable and uh, pediatric blunt trauma patients. And you can see there were uh, 357 that could be evaluated. 23 had significant peritoneum, 20, uh, hemoperitoneum, 22 on CT, and one at surgery, and four patients were taken to the OR. Three had a positive FAST, but one didn't. And just in reading about that one patient, that patient went immediately, it was so unstable, they took the kid immediately to the operating room. So there may not, even though they had a FAST, there may not have been enough time for the uh, free fluid to accumulate uh, for it to be positive. So their conclusion is a positive FAST uh, suggests hemoperitoneum and abdominal injury, while a negative aids little in uh, decision-making. This was a PCARN study looking at almost 6,500 uh, patients, of which about 13% with blunt torso trauma underwent FAST before CT. And what you see is about 5% of intra-abdominal injury, which pretty much is consistent across all studies. And what was interesting is the FAST was more likely to be performed if it was, um, you were highly suspected intra-abdominal injury. So the child was probably more unstable. So first of all, it's only used in about 13% of the children. But as a suspicion, they asked the clinician how likely you think this patient has intra-abdominal injury. And if it was greater than 50%, uh, FAST was performed over 30% of the time. What they also found is with low-moderate suspicion for inter-abdominal injury, the, the child was less likely to undergo a CT and uh, decided to do either serial fast or uh, serial exams. And the relative risk, you can see, does not cross, run, uh, cross one. So in other words, the use of the fast in this particular situation reduced uh, CT scanning in this particular population of low to moderate risk of intra-abdominal injury. Okay, 
Here's from the uh, Cochrane Database uh, Systematic Review in 2015, looking at diagnostic algorithms using ultrasound. Um, and there are really few randomized trials, only four uh, in this particular uh, systematic review. The relative risk of FAST, as you can see, uh, crosses one, so the FAST algorithms didn't add a lot. What they do, did find in terms of um, accuracy, what they did find is the FAST algorithms reduced CT scans. And they say at best it has no negative effect in morbidity and mortality. The other thing in the hypotensive patient, it's much more accurate, so you're seeing FAST typically used more in the hypotensive patient versus the stable patient. And here's an algorithm which I like. So if you, if you just run through it with me, blunt abdominal trauma. If the patient's unstable, you can do a quick ultrasound. If it's positive, you can make a decision at that time where the patient should go to the operating room. Generally in children, we try to fluid resuscitate, give them uh, blood products and try to stabilize them because we, uh, uh, the importance of splenic salvage is, is, is key in terms of immunocompetency later. If they're stable, if they're positive and they're stabilized out, then a CT scan can help delineate and make a decision after that if they need to go to the OR. Ultrasound is negative, then you might consider are there non-abdominal injuries that are participating or in this particular population, I would want to do serial um, exams because I would be concerned that enough fluid hasn't collected to, to be positive on ultrasound. In the stable category, if they're high risk, you just have them go to CT. If they're low risk, ultrasound positive, then they go to CT negative, you just observe. So I think this is a reasonable algorithm to integrate uh, ultrasound for the pediatric patient within your practice. So in conclusion, we need an integrated approach. Uh, you want to use the mechanism of injury, your clinical exam, laboratory values combined with ultrasound. You don't want to rely solely on EFAS, but a positive FAST is likely to indicate hemoperitoneum. Serial exams are good, but we need some better data. How often do you do that? We were trying to do them every 30 minutes on patients that we had concerns on. And you can see a change over time, so I think it's useful. So the bottom line is more research is needed to understand these kinds of scenarios where ultrasound is more useful. Okay, and with that, I'm going to transition to Dr. Sorrentino. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, I assumed that with, since the title of our talk was Fast Facts, that that gave me the license to talk fast. So, um, so here we go. Hold on. Um, Annalise Sorrentino, I'm pediatric emergency medicine at University of Alabama in Birmingham at the Children's Hospital there. And we're going to switch gears just a little bit and talk about some plain x-rays. Um, you know, we just went over, had a great review of ultrasound. Um, children are different than adults. This wouldn't be a pediatric talk if I didn't say, kids are not little adults. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be disappointed if I didn't say that. But there's physiologic, there's anatomic, there's developmental differences that, that, that are going to come into play that we're going to talk about. So let's say you had the four-week-old that rolled off the bed, and this is kind of our code, right? Four-week-olds don't roll off the bed, so of course it didn't happen that way. But knowing what's normal, so knowing what a four-week-old can do or normal, what a six-month-old or a two-year-old can do is important to know if the injury is plausible uh, for what you're seeing. So we're going to talk about a few, we're going to talk about child abuse a little bit later, but I do want to touch on a few uh, classic x-ray findings of child abuse. The classic metaphyseal lesion, um, which, let's see if I can, um, the bucket, also called the bucket handle or the corner, um, corner fracture. 
This is usually uh, happens when you have a um, a high velocity if a, if a limb is grabbed, uh, if it's twisted, if it's pulled, or sometimes if it's shaken. If the child is not ambulatory, and you're going to hear me say this quite a bit, if the child is not ambulatory, they probably shouldn't have these fractures. Uh, is it conceivable that an ambulatory patient could get a buckle ha bucket handle fracture accidentally? It's conceivable, um, but in a non-ambulatory patient, it's, it's very unlikely. Rib fractures are something else uh, that are difficult to, to diagnose. These are produced by usually direct blows to the chest or squeezing um, of, the, of the chest. Anterior uh, rib fractures are more commonly abusive uh, and posterior as opposed to the lateral rib fractures. Rib fractures from abuse are more likely to be non-displaced and they're more likely to have multiple fractures uh, in, that, that we see. The problem is, is a lot of times they don't show up until, uh, you really can't see them until the callus formation forms. So they're very hard to see sometimes on the initial exam. Because, you know, bone, baby's bones bend a little bit. They're not really easy to break. So these are usually high, um, high velocity or injuries. And so it's a lot of force, which means there's a lot of uh, mortality that goes along with these. So these are high risk injuries. Um, there may not be overlying bruising. And think about the kids that you see just with the broken arms. How often do you see overlying bruising over that broken bone? You don't see it that often. So don't be surprised that you could have skull fractures or, or rib fractures without having overlying bruising. The um, other bones that, and this is typical in adults as well, um, but other, there are other bones in the body that are very difficult to break, scapula, sternum, pelvis. If you see those types of injuries in kids and you don't have a high-velocity injury that's, that, that is causing it, think about abuse. Um, diaphyseal fractures. There are two different types of diaphyseal fractures that we see, and I think I was always trained that spiral fractures are abusive. And honestly, I see more accidental spiral fractures than I do see abusive spiral fractures. In the ambulatory toddler, they can um, sustain a um, accidental spiral fracture. But the most common type of long bone fracture associated with abuse is a diaphyseal mid-shaft transverse fracture, um, and it's usually from a direct blow. So those are, and, and again, we'll talk about that a little bit more a little bit later. One thing I just want to touch on, because this is a high-risk injury that is often missed, um, this is a uh, distal humeral fysial separation. And if you don't know about it, you won't look for it. So the key with this is the relationship on the lateral x-ray. These are usually kids that are less than three, um, and about 50% of these cases are abusive. So that's why it's important to try and, and really um, ferret these out. On the lateral x-ray, the key is to see where the heads of the, the ulna and the radius are in relationship to the distal humerus. Um, in, with this, in an obvious one like this, you're going to have posterior medial um, dislocation or uh, translation of the bones. But sometimes the x-rays are not this impressive, and sometimes they're, they're actually very close to normal. So having a high index of suspicion, maybe doing more than just a sling, maybe putting them in a splint, fully immobilizing, sending them to ortho early um, might be worth it. One, not only because it, it's, um, it's, a, it's a bad injury, but two, if it goes untreated, uh, you can have growth deformities, you can have um, growth arrests and other things that, that affect them uh, down the line. Okay. We're going to talk more about abuse later, so now we're just going to touch on neck pain in kids. And again, it's normal. It's, it's important to know what's normal before you know what's abnormal. So you might see an x-ray like this and say, yep, okay, there's a, there's a fracture here. But then you look here and you think, well, is it normal? Is it abnormal? Kids up to about the age of eight have a um, tendency to have pseudo-subluxation. 
It is most commonly on C2, C2 on C3, although sometimes it can be C3 on C4. Um, and the, the problem is, is that it's sometimes hard to tell, is it a true fracture or is it a pseudo-subluxation? So the, the way we discern this is with a line called Swiss-Chuck's line. And it goes from uh, C1 to C3. And this needs to come within 1.5 millimeters of the uh, anterior cortex of C2. If it's greater than 1.5 millimeters, if that line is greater than that, then you have to think about a true subluxation, hangman's fracture, or something else. Um, sometimes they talk about flexion extension films are, are helpful with that. I find that in the acute setting, flex extend uh, films are not real helpful. You have a lot of muscle spasm. You don't have, they're not good films, and it raises more questions than it answers. Uh, 14-year-old basketball injury, I probably, being from Alabama, should have said this was a football injury, but I'm more of a basketball fan, so um, I made it a basketball injury. And he jammed his thumb, so, uh, and he hurts right over his snuff box. So scaphoid fracture is the most frequently fractured carpal bone and accounts for about 15% of wrist fractures. Most of the fractures occur, like you see here, mid-bone, not distal or proximal. It's usually mostly mid-bone. But even if you have a normal x-ray, if you have tenderness over that snuff box, immobilize, you treat that as a fracture. And I know you all know that. It's usually an axial load with a hyperextended um, wrist. And if you don't treat these aggressively, you can lead to non-union, avascular necrosis, chronic pain. And so you really want to make sure um, that, you, that you treat those appropriately. Um, the, gym, you know, the, the gymnast that comes in that flung herself off the beam, um, and now she has an ankle injury. So this is a triplane fracture. And again, this is something that's, that's very important uh, to, to make sure that, that, that you look for. This is a complex Salter-Harris IV fracture uh, with components in all three planes. It most commonly happens between the ages of 12 and 15 um, because that's as the ossification centers, as the ankle ossifies, it lends itself to this type of transitional fracture. So that's why it happens at that age. Um, there are three, since it's triplane, there are three components. There is a vertical fracture through the epiphysis, a horizontal fracture of the physis, and an oblique fracture of the metaphysis. And so it's very important to try and, and make sure if you have all three of those, a lot of these, these kids need further imaging. They might need surgical intervention. They need more than just crutches and a, uh, and a posterior splint. So important to keep that in mind. And lastly, the, the most common, you know, kids fall on outstretched hands. That's the most common uh, injury mechanism we see of, of everyone. I had this kid that came in. Um, and he had been wrestling with his brother. He fell. Uh, so we have this lateral elbow x-ray, and, and you look at it, and it's actually a fairly good x-ray. You have the little hourglass, so you're, you're okay. But when you look at your lines, you know, when you're looking at an elbow x-ray, the anterior humeral line bisects the capitellum. You're okay. But your radial capitellar line um, completely misses it. So this is a radial head dislocation. And when you have a radial head dislocation, you want to make sure that you're not missing anything else. And you can kind of see, um, it kind of cuts it off, but you can almost see there's a little bit of a fracture that, that you're seeing there. And so these are Montasia and Galeazzi fractures. So Montasia uh, is what we just described. It's a proximal ulnar fracture with anterior dislocation of the radial head. And Galeazzi is a radial fracture with dislocated the distal ulna. Now, I remember learning these for boards and promptly forgetting them. And so I found a couple of mnemonics. You can find one that works for you. Um, Grimus is a Galeazzi is an in, in, uh, inferior radial injury. Um, Frog is fractured radius of Galeazzi. My favorite that I remember is mugger. So, and that's the bone that's fractured. Montasia, it's the ulna. Uh, Galeazzi, it's the radius. And then gruesome murder, I thought was a good one for Halloween coming up. And it's Galeazzi, radius fracture, ulnar dislocation, 
Montasia, ulnar fracture, radial head dislocation. So again, um, just keeping those in mind uh, is important. And I don't know if we got any. <laughs> and we'll move on. I kind of feel like we're uh, in the relay in the Olympics. <laughs> Handing off the baton. Don't drop it. So I'm going to talk a little bit. That's okay. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the decision rules. And you, you know, sort of my interpretation of these decision rules. Interestingly enough, in pediatrics, you know, the prevalence of disease, the probability of any of these serious injuries happening is quite low. So that's why we really struggle in pediatric emergency medicine to develop good decision rules, unlike emergency medicine, because our significant intracranial injuries, our significant cervical spine injuries, our significant abdominal injuries are much less common than what you see in adult patients. So that's why I think decision rules are a little more complicated and more difficult to develop in kids. So this is the PCARN head trauma that you guys have seen over and over again. They uh, divide into less than two years, greater than two years uh, to develop their rules. Um, in terms of they looked at clinically important traumatic brain injury, death, neurosurgical intervention, intubation, and hospital admission. You might want to note real quickly, they also had some severe mechanisms, and those are sort of the severe mechanisms. Not that important to sort of remember uh, what they are, but they're usually pretty like patient with ejection, death of another passenger. So if we look at sort of the results of the PCARN uh, head decision rules, and remember these are one-way decision rules. So unlike, say, uh, Ottawa or Nexus, where if those uh, criteria exist, you don't image. If they don't exist, you do image. Remember, these are one-way decision rules. So what these are pr pr primarily trying to provide you with is who should I not CT? It doesn't provide you any data as to who you should really CT. So you look, the sensitivity is excellent in these. And the bottom line, what does that mean? It means that the risk of missing a clinically important brain injury using these rules is very, 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 very low, right? So if you use these rules, if you follow them, you're not going to miss a significant uh, clinically important brain injury. But if you look at the specificity, which is quite low, that tells you that even if you're applying these rules, you're going to still CT too many people. We can't figure out who those people are, but we know that you're going to CT too many people. Remember, if you look at the study, the overall CT rate was about 34%. If you applied the decision rules to that pediatric population, the imaging rate actually went up to 41 to 47%, depending on how you interpret it. So even though these are a good starting place, the bottom line is if PCAR and CT for head rules change dramatically your practice, you are probably CTing way too many people. And you have to know, again, that it's going to have you CT more people and have a lot of negative CTs. So I personally... Sort of, the, they're fine, but they didn't really change my practice or impact what I do. I do like two offshoots of that study, which I think are very important. And one looked at the effect of observation on CT utilization. And so what PCARN did is they could, the investigators, as they enrolled a patient, could check off, did you observe this patient, yes or no? Unfortunately, they didn't collect any data about how long did you observe the patient, what ended up happening. But I think what's interesting is if they observed the patient, their rate of CT was significantly lower from 35 to 31%. But there was a similar rate of clinically important traumatic brain injury, which really tells you that you can use observation as a means to try to lower your CT rate. 
Uh, I often cringe when I work in a teaching institution when I hear the residents talking to families and say, we could do a CT, but we're just going to watch you. <laughs> and I think that's a really bad way to talk about this study with parents. I usually say, you know, you're usually pretty good at identifying early on who needs to go emergently to the operating room. Sometimes it's hard for us to figure out the, who has a small bleed. So what we like to do is watch you in the emergency department to figure out if you're one of those kids who actually needs a CT scan or not. That's a much better sell with parents that you're observing them to figure out if they need a CT scan, not in lieu of it. How long do you watch is always because that data wasn't collected by PCARN. I kind of go with four hours, but I'm not rigid in that. In other words, if I have a patient that looks great at two and a half and three hours, I will send them home. I don't make the parents sit around for an extra hour just so I can check it off on my box. I also like this study that came out of PCARN, which looked at clinically important uh, traumatic brain injury and isolated severe mechanism, which is why I showed that severe mechanism at the beginning. And I think what this I really like about this study is it shows that if you just have isolated severe mechanism and nothing else, your risk of clinically important traumatic brain injury does not go up. So in other words, even in a patient with severe mechanism, you need to look at the kid, and if they still fit the low-risk decision rules, you're fine. It doesn't put you at increased risk for a clinically important traumatic brain injury. So I really like those two studies more than I like the original study in terms of guiding my practice. I think cervical spine injuries are always really hard in kids because they're very, very, very uncommon. For us to figure out who has them makes it very, very difficult. So in Nexus, um, very few children overall were enrolled and not very many children actually had a cervical spine injury. So that makes it very difficult, again, to predict who's going to have one. You know, everyone has their sort of way of remembering Nexus. I put one up there. In the study of Nexus, the rules were 100% sensitive in the few children. So only 88 patients were enrolled less than two years of age. Four of them had a cervical spine injury. And only a total number of 30 cervical spine injuries were identified in less than 17 years of age. So when people then took Nexus and applied it to other populations, they found that the sensitivity dropped. And that was very concerning for cervical spine injuries. So uh, PCARN has also gotten into the cervical spine injury um, rules, and what they did is they looked at uh, 539 children with cervical spine injuries, they applied Nexus to it, and now it's 83% sensitive, and that's probably not tolerable for any of us to have an 83% sensitive rule looking for uh, cervical spine injuries. They did add a few more criteria, any neck tenderness or pain in any other injury, but still the sensitivity was not that great. It was 96% and missed 19 cervical spine injuries. So this should all make you not very happy with where cervical spine injury uh, low decision rules are. So PCARN then did a retrospective case control study looking at children less than 16 years of age um, at various centers and then had some uh, control patients to try to identify uh, who could we predict that would have a cervical spine injury. I'll be honest, I can't remember these. I don't know if it's because I'm old at this point, but I can't remember them. They just seem convoluted. I always have to look them up. So it really, to me, these rules aren't intuitive. Um, and so I really struggle with these because I can't remember them. And I think it's the situation in pediatrics, again, where you're trying to predict a very, very uncommon event. So you have to keep adding more and more factors, and that makes your decision rule really less applicable. So, uh, but it was 98% sensitive. I do think they then went and looked at age-related differences and said, okay, we have these factors we know predict. Does it vary by age? 
And so if you look at less than two years, focal neurologic deficit high-risk MVC, two to seven years, focal neurologic deficit high-risk MVC, and other things, Again, the older population, focal neurologic deficit, high-risk MVC. So my interpretation of all this data is really trying to look for focal neurologic deficits in these patients, which can be very tricky, and then think about a high-risk MVC um, in terms of if you're trying to evaluate somebody. So what about the Canucks? Unfortunately, they uh, did not include any patients less than 16 years of age, so not very helpful in this young population, which is so difficult. So how do I deal with C-spine clearance? Because I truly believe that there is really no effective practical clinical rule for C-spine clearance in pediatric patients as, of, as we speak at this time. So I think going looking at those age-related differences that PCARN found is really trying to look for those focal neurologic deficits. And sometimes those are not going to be easily picked up on your first exam. The kid's going to be screaming, their nurses, their trauma surgeons, everyone else. I always try to make myself to go back in the room, ask the nurses how the child responded to IV sticks, to blood draws, ask the parents how the child, and really look carefully when there's not 100 people in the room if they're moving symmetrically. Because a lot of times when you're going to try to examine them, they're going to resist, and it's going to be a very difficult exam. So C-spine clearance in pediatrics, I think, still remains a little bit of a black box. So what about identifying children at low risk for blunt abdominal injuries? Another PCARN study, 12,000 patients. You can sort of the, the interventions that would therefore uh, make it a clinically important traumatic uh, blunt abdominal injury. Of note, in the study, the CT rate overall was 45%. They, physicians only missed one patient of all of those patients. It was a patient with a small bowel injury who was discharged and returned uh, the following day. So this is what they found uh, in terms of the identifying children at very low risk for blunt abdominal injuries. So the seatbelt sign was probably the best predictor, and then you can kind of go down. Abdominal tenderness sort of all makes sense. These rules, when applied to the population, missed six patients. All of those patients had hemoperitoneum. EFAST was not included as part of this study, so many people think that's sort of a deficiency. Could the, could the decision rules plus an EFAST improve your sensitivity? So what I sort of take home for this is if you look at abdominal trauma seatbelt sign, which is the best predictor of clinically important traumatic brain injury, only 5.7% of the time of patients with a seatbelt injury will you actually have an intra-abdominal injury. So you can tell that even using this factor, it's 95% of the time the patient is not going to have a clinically important uh, abdominal injury. So you can tell that even though this is the best thing we've got, it's not that great. Um, in terms of looking at GCS here is also important. We actually looked at our trauma registry and tried to say if we took out GCS, and actually that's an important part of the rule, at least for us. So again, I think it's important to realize that the best predictor of intra-abdominal injury in kids still only means 5.7% of the time will they need an intervention. You can see certainly that the more um, variables present, the more likely. So I think it's still out, you know, these abdominal injuries get us in the ballpark, but still really doesn't give you a great uh, rule to, to, to use. So again, I'm a firm believer that initial physical exam and serial examinations, just as we've heard about before, really only 5% of kids or less with intra-abdominal injuries will need to go to the operating room. 
So I feel like you have time. So unlike some of your adult patients, you have time to do serial exams, to do serial fast, and really think closely before you make that uh, call to do an abdominal CT. Because again, you have time to make that diagnosis. You don't have to make it at minute 15. You can make it at hour two, hour four. Most of these patients, even with liver and spleen lacerations, do not go to the operating room. So you haven't uh, impacted the care of the patient at all. And really, so it's not a surgical condition. And I think the really important question of when do children with blunt abdominal trauma and a negative EFAS need an abdominal CT, we cannot provide you that information at this time. So I'm going to hand off again. Hand off the baton. All right. Everyone doing okay? Okay. So um, I'm going to talk about everyone's favorite topic, when to suspect abuse. And unfortunately, um, all of us that treat kids, uh, that's something that we have to think about. We're mandated reporters, and um, you know, intentional injury and homicide, along with unintentional injury, cause more deaths in the adolescent and pediatric population than all other um, factors combined. Um, sometimes things don't add up, and among children who are less than 15 years of age, there's a significant percentage of those um, deaths worldwide that are due to, to abuse, and it's about 13%. So not an insignificant number of deaths are due to intentional injury. Every state has its own definition of child abuse, uh, and it, it has to do with their, their, their uh, civil and criminal um, statutes. But in 2010, the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act um, came up with their definition of child abuse, and it's um, any act that results in death, serious physical or emotional harm, sexual abuse or exploitation, or imminent risk of harm, involving a child which is usually less than 18, although may vary state to state, by a parent or caretaker. So someone who is responsible for the well-being of that child is responsible for the injury. So that is kind of their definition. There are people that are at high risk for, um, for, for being abused. And you're going to hear me say a few things pretty consistently over these next few slides. Um, the younger kids, younger than three years of age, are at much higher risk of, having, of being abused. If they've been abused before, even if it, was, if it was recognized on the initial incident, sometimes they get put back in the home, there's up to 50% chance of having a second, uh, a second episode of abuse. Um, parents are they're not biologic caretakers, or that's you know whether it's a, a foster family or a step family, um, those are uh, those are at higher risk. And then the kids with uh, underlying illnesses, special health care health care needs, um, are uh, are at higher risk as well. We're going to talk a little bit about bruising, and again, talking about it's normal to know what's normal. Um, and so there are places that kids bruise. You know, toddlers have big heads; they get foreheads. Um, bruises, knees, elbows, extensor surfaces, but there are some places that are very difficult to bruise accidentally, especially in the younger kids. And I call it the TEN area, T-E-N, torso, ears, and neck. And especially the ears, that's very highly suggestive. If you see ear bruising, really think about abuse. So torso, ears, and neck, so the 10-4 is kind of the bruising rules. Torso, ears, and neck, four years and under, or any bruising in an infant four months or younger. You know, think about a four-month-old is starting to roll over, but it's not crawling, so really they're going to stay where you put them. You know, if I stay on the couch all day, I'm probably not going to bruise, but if I get up and move around like I should, um, then, then maybe it's a little bit more likely. So think about what the developmental level of the, of the patient is. 
Pattern bruising uh, is, is highly indicative of abuse. Sometimes it is diff very difficult to tell um, what it was, but sometimes it's very easy to tell if it was a, a, um, a shoe, if it was a cord. Um, the slap marks, like you can see here, usually that is caused as the hand touches the skin. Uh, the blood is pushed out from underneath and the capillaries spread, and so that's why you get that blanching um, area of the fingerprints on the, on the face. Something that you may be asked is, can you tell how old these bruises are? That is a very in, in, uh, um, inexact science. So there have been studies showing that you know the, the bruises caused by the collection and the breakdown of blood underneath the skin, and there, there can be black and blue and red and green and yellow and brown and all these different colors, um, and it's very hard to, to date them. There's one study that said if there was any yellow, it was probably more than 18 hours. Um, but other than that, even bruises on the same, of the same age on the same patient can look very different. So it's very difficult. So I, I don't think that, that we are uh, able to accurately um, date and time bruises. But the best you can do is describe it, describe what you see, describe if there's any patterns um, to help out the investigators. Bite marks, uh, again, we see typically animal bite marks. You have cats and dogs, they puncture, they tear, you see a lot of skin damage. Human bites don't typically do that. It's more of a, a, a void or round. Usually it's clear in the center unless there's been some suction, you might see some um, petechiae or redness. And it's, it's hard to tell, too, because sometimes other kids bite, right? So I've had kids come in with bite marks and they say, oh, it's a, it's a child at school. Um, you can measure the intercanine distance. Um, adults are going to be more than, usually more than 3.5 centimeters or 3 centimeters. Um, children are less than 2.5 centimeters. So there is a way to kind of sort that out. But bite marks uh, should be um, should be on your radar as well. And then one thing that we don't think about sometimes, you know, we always think about abuse. It's got to be violent. Well, what about the kid that sat at home for two days like this? And it happens. Um, and you know, maybe in Alabama it was the Iron Bowl. Who knows? Then they don't come to the ER. But um, keeping this child at home for two days is a form of abuse. It's neglect. And so getting social work involved, making sure that the other um, situation uh, there was and other reasons why they didn't come in. Um, unsafe home environments, these kids are at higher risk uh, for various reasons. They have increased um, exposure to, to weapons, to drugs, to alcohol, so there's, there's various reasons. Uh, and then as we talked about before, inflicted fractures. The most common um, long bone inflicted fracture is a transverse fracture, um, femur first, then humerus, and it's usually mid-shaft. So those are going to be, it's not the spiral fractures, it's the mid-shaft um, transverse fracture, and usually these are from a direct blow. And so the majority, the studies have shown that the majority of fractures are actually, of abusive fractures are going to end up being this type. Abusive head injury, again, occurs much more likely in the first year of life. The median age is about four months. Uh, it can be from a direct blow. It can be from shaking. And so, again, it's so important to remember you can have significant head injury without overlying hematoma, bruising, um, bleeding, things like that. So uh, doing imaging for abuse, you know, this is kind of a babygram. Um, which is sort of a skeletal survey, but the real skeletal survey is a very specific set of x-rays um, that is done um, in usually less than two years of age. More than two years of age, you can either do more targeted x-rays to the areas that you're worried about or do a bone scan. Um, but there's a lot of radiation that goes along with this, and they get a repeat skeletal survey oftentimes two weeks later. And 
significant amount of time, there are findings on that that aren't on the first one. So it is important to get that follow-up. So a true skeletal survey is, is something to keep in mind. Um, burns. Some people feel that this is more of a premeditated injury, um, but it does happen. Again, sometimes you can see patterns to the burns, things that make it higher risk. Again, younger kids, um, they can't get out of the water, they can't protect themselves. Bilateral involvement, both legs, uh, those, are, those are the ones. The ones that are more severe, the ones that need skin grafting, the ones that need ICU care, um, have, be thinking about abuse. And then finally, we're going to intraoral injuries. Uh, the thing I want you to take away from this is I have seen all the frenulum injuries that I have ever seen have been accidental, but they've all been in toddlers that have fallen. If you have a non-ambulatory child who has a frenulum injury, you need to think about force feeding. You need to think about, um, you know, um, strangling or holding the hand over the mouth, um, and so to keep that in mind. So sometimes the story just doesn't fit. Um, and so it's our job to, to kind of um, put this together and, and be the voice for our, for our patients. Thank you. Thanks. That was great. Yeah, if the shirt doesn't fit, you have a problem. All right. I'm going to talk uh, very briefly about hypertonic saline versus uh, mannitol. So it's kind of the salt versus sugar dilemma. As we know, in terms of pediatric uh, or uh, traumatic brain injury stats that Infants and young children at really high risk. The red uh, line graph there just shows the number of children, and they tend to be the highest risk under four years of age. Obviously, there's many different mechanisms from direct blow to being thrown to being shaken. So there's primary tissue damage, but after that, this is where we come in. And so we want to, our secondary prevention is going to be in terms of uh, decreasing some of the inflammatory and excitotoxic processes that take place. The other thing that we have to attend to is hypoxia, hypotension, hypohypercarbia, and hypo or hyperglycemia. These are all bad boys uh, when it comes to uh, traumatic brain injury. So this is something in our wheelhouse that we can absolutely address in our emergency care. When we look at the use of mannitol or hypertonic saline, generally this is going to be pretty severe traumatic brain injury. Most would consider it with a glass. If you're intubating, then you think about uh, potentially using mannitol or hypertonic saline. Some say with a glass go less than six, but certainly six to nine, uh, many of the trauma surgeons and neurosurgeons are going to want you to initiate some type of uh, treatment to reduce intracranial pressure. So this is a systematic review of randomized trials. This is not in children. But just the, there's a couple of things. One, this showed no difference in terms of hypertonic saline mannitol and the reduction of ICP. There were some uh, treatment failures, uh, and so hypertonic saline had some favorable characteristics, as you can see by the relative risk ratio here. This is part of the salt-sugar debate, and this was 38 patients with severe traumatic brain injury. These uh, were now uh, patients between 15 and 70 years of age. And some of the take-home for this is that they had similar control of intracranial hypertension. There was some concern about serum sodium and osmolality and uh, excretion of urine sodium with hypertonic saline. So there was some concern that that might decrease the efficacy over time of hypertonic saline. In a larger study by the same investigators, they showed more significant short-term benefits of hypertonic saline, 
but six-month mortality in Glasgow outcome uh, scales were not different at six months. This was uh, just published in 2012 in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine on guidelines for the acute management of traumatic brain injury. And they had different levels of evidence, and as it re re uh, relates to uh, hypertonic saline and mannitol, there was some level two evidence that said hypertonic saline should be considered for the treatment of traumatic brain injury relative to mannitol. And here's the uh, range. We generally use uh, 4% uh, or 4 cc's per kilo. Um, up to 10 cc's per kilo has been used. And since I did this review, I talked to a number of our neurosurgical colleagues and intensive care colleagues, and they tend to go towards the higher number of mils per kilo for the initiation of hypertonic saline. And then it can be given as a drip. Manitol, we typically give a quarter to a full gram per kilo, and as you can see, has pretty good um, uh, mechanisms for reducing uh, blood viscosity. And the osmotic, osmotic effect, excuse me, causes gradual movement of water, right, from the brain parenchyma into the systemic circulation. Hypertonic saline allows for improved uh, rheologic and osmolar gradients. And it decreases this uh, through some uh, effects, plus restoration of normal cellular resting membrane potentials. You might need, uh, in hypertonic saline, it also can be used to treat salt wasting uh, from persistent cerebral hypertension. And there uh, was a number of level two and uh, another level one study that led to the, the recommendations. And I'm going to uh, basically uh, promoting the use of hypertonic saline potentially over mannitol in this population, but we don't have a good randomized trial on this. This was just published this year. I, I put it in as a prospective observational study, and they evaluated a number of different um, um, medications for use for traumatic brain injury, including uh, hypertonic saline, mannitol, fentanyl, and uh, pentobarbital. And after controlling for the multiple meds, hypertonic saline decreased by twofold in terms of the reduction of increased ICP and had a better metrics relative to cerebral perfusion. So with those, I just wanted to go over the recommendations. Uh, they have the latest recommendation for traumatic brain injury. Airway RSI of Glasgow less than nine, cricoid pressure don't use, etomidate uh, may be associated with some reduction in ICP. Propofol they don't suggest using, succinylcholine okay to use, hyperventilation is reasonable but don't get under 30 and there's a more recent data that says that can be even more detrimental if you go under 30. Um, Neuroimaging, uh, CT and ED, repeat, not necessary unless clinical status changes, which is good. Steroids don't use. Glucose, some concern about hyperglycemia. Hyperosmolar therapy, they suggest that hypertonic saline has the edge. And anti-seizure prophylaxis, consider phenytoin as a treatment option in infants and young children at high risk. Kepra really hasn't been evaluated on a long-term basis. So the bottom line is there's few data to inform us on optimal treatment. We want to avoid the bad boys, hypoxia and hypercarbia and hypoglycemia for sure. Uh, RSI for GCS less than nine is definitely in our wheelhouse. And again, there's few data, but probably the edge, at least at this time, is hypertonic saline, 3% hypertonic saline at somewhere between uh, six and 10 mils per kilo. 
And with that, I think we end and um, a rapid fire, and uh, we'll be up here for questions and answers. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to ASEP Essay Replay. Select lectures from the American College of Emergency Physicians Scientific Assembly. Check out www.asep.org slash ASEPECME for free and discounted CME courses every month, including the brand new ASEP Trauma, Stroke, and Cardiovascular CME Collection, the third edition.